Good morning and welcome back. After a um, long and extended break, um, let me just say out front, I am grateful, okay, that Florence changed course and that Florence missed us. I'm very grateful uh, and I feel um, empathy for those in South and North Carolina that are being rained on right now because life is hard for them. Um, and, I, and I hope and I pray that they make it through it without any injuries, deaths, loss of property and everything else. I, I do have to confess, like Alexis, that um, I've wrestled in my heart with, like, man, why do my kids got to be home like all week? Like, <laughs> I, I guess it's kind of like buying an insurance policy, right? I mean, it's, it's something you pay for that you hope you never use, right? So you're grateful. I mean, we made all these preparations. Uh, literally everything from our bottom floor of the house, I moved up to the top floor of the house. And then nothing happened. I had to move it all back down again. And I was in Sam's Club on Wednesday. All the bread was gone, but I found two loaves of bread, like on this bottom corner back of the shelf. I, I had to reach in to, to get these two loaves of bread. I'm going around with my cart, and people are looking at me like, and one woman said, where'd you get that bread? <laughs> like, I was feeling guilty. I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, I need to protect my two loaves of bread that I got. You know what I mean? Like, it was crazy. It was crazy. Just the... The hysteria and, and, and the hype surrounding the whole thing. But again, I am grateful that nothing happened. I'm grateful that uh, the insurance policy that was purchased did not need to be used. Okay? Amen. And at least we all know what zones we're in now, right? I'm in zone B. Represent. So. <laughs> um, turn with me over to Acts chapter 17, if you could, please. And I've shared many times that I grew up as an atheist. My parents never taught me atheism. I just grew up believing that there was no God. I wasn't taught anything different. I wasn't taught anything. And so that's just where my thoughts went. Um, that's what atheism means, right? Ah, meaning no, and then theo, right? Atheism, a, you know, no God. Anyway. On my journey, there was a time when I became convinced that there was a God, that there was a supreme or divine being, because uh, creation, I thought, could not be explained without some higher power working on life. And, but I did not know who or what this supreme being was, <clears throat> so I began to call myself agnostic, which again... Gnostic or gnosis means knowledge. Ah, again, means no, no knowledge of the creator. This only lasted about six or nine months because, I mean, after I started to believe in God, I went through this agnostic thing pretty quickly. And then I came upon Jesus and obviously God uh, led me in the right way. But I think that many are like I was at one time, agnostic. <laughs> Or knowing and believing that there is something out there. Surely this world didn't come to be just out of randomness. But at the same time, not knowing who or what is behind the creation of all things. 
Um, I always ask atheists and agnostics two questions. One, if there were a God, would you like it? That's always the first question I ask. The second question I ask is, would you like to find him if you could? That would be to an agnostic. And these questions are important in revealing the heart. If a person would not like God, even if there were a God, and they would not like to find him, even if they could, then you know the issue is not intellectual. The issue is emotional. More than likely, can't speak for every single person, but more than likely that person has suffered some kind of traumatic pain in their past and they've chosen to reject the idea of God. If someone would like it, if there were a God, and they would like to find him if they could, then it's not hard to overcome any intellectual issues that are there because that person is seeking to some degree. In John 1, Jesus says in, in red letters, Alexis, that's, that's the only truthful part of the Bible is the red letters, okay? <laughs> John 1, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, he has made him known to us. And so God wants to be known. He does not want to be hidden. He does not want us to be ignorant of him. And he's revealed himself in Jesus, the son of God. And if we seek him, we will find God. Amen. And so here in our section in Acts chapter 17, um, Paul, if you, um, did we get the slides working? We were, okay, there we go. So yeah, put up the map on the next one. So um, here we are in our journey, Paul's second missionary journey. Um, he's gone from Antioch, he's gone through Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, come upon to Troas, which is kind of towards the center in the top. And that's where he gets the vision of the man of Macedonia, right? So he crosses the Aegean Sea, he and his team. They go to Philippi. And by the way, um, Dwight and the campus ministry, you guys did a fantastic job last week at the campus service. Yes! We were all, I think, all of us, I think, were so inspired to um, see you guys' faith, to see you guys' courage and confidence in God. Keep it up. I was just reminded of that because Dwight preached on Philippi. But anyway... And they move on from there to Thessalonica and Berea, which we would have covered in our um, house churches. And then today we're on down to um, Athens, which is that final blue star close to the nine o'clock position. But Athens was, of course, a, a major city in the empire. And it was, a, it was a major center of learning at the time. Um, hundreds of years before, Aristotle... Plato and Socrates had shaped the modern Greek thought through philosophy. And today we're going to talk a lot about philosophy. I hope that I don't get lost in the weeds, okay, in this thing. Philosophy is very easy to just kind of spiral into just kind of nothingness and your brain turns to mush, right? But Luke explains what happens in Athens um, easily enough in Three sections here in our passage, which we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Um, section one, Paul arrives in Athens and he, Luke describes how Paul ends up speaking in the very um, influential Areopagus. We'll talk about that in section two. Paul speaks to the Areopagus. He presents a speech or a sermon and he explains the unknown God. And then in section three... 
um, Paul or um, Luke writes about how the people responded to Paul's message. And so from Paul's experience, I think we can learn that God no longer accepts man's ignorance of him because he has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. And so this morning or this afternoon, yes, uh, the title of the sermon this afternoon is The Unknown God. Let's go ahead and pray briefly and um, we'll begin. Father, you are um, king, ruler, and controller over all things. Um, All things that are weather, all things that are people. Um, Father, all these nations, everything is under your command and under your control. And we are thankful, Father. We are grateful that we were spared uh, the worst parts of Hurricane Florence. At the same time, we pray for those that are suffering the worst parts of Hurricane Florence right now. We pray that Um, People would be kept safe in North and South Carolina, that families would be able to stay together and that um, people would be able to have all that they need. Please help people to see uh, your magnificent power um, through the storm and please help them to think about you and how they need to come to you. We also pray for Connor Sanford, who has been improving on a daily basis. God, what an answer. You're just answering prayer after prayer after prayer with Connor and his life. Uh, We thank you and we praise you for all that you do as a great healer and a great provider. We pray for the Sanford family that you would um, strengthen them during this time. Give them great faith. Give them great trust in you as they go through this time um, with their son. And we also pray for ourselves that we we would be able to um, gain a lot from your word this morning, that we would be able to see and understand that you truly have revealed yourself to us in your son, Jesus Christ, and we no longer need to be ignorant of you. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, or let me just start up in 17 verse Um, 14. This is as Paul is leaving Berea. It says the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth 
and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Three points this morning. The first is simply an unknown philosophy. An unknown philosophy. Here in verse uh, 16, it says that while Paul was, uh, as he had come to Athens, he was distressed because when he got there, the city was full of idols. And the city truly was full of idols back in the first century. Uh, Historians say that there were over 30,000 different statues and idols in the city of Athens at that time. The population at the time was only 10,000 people. So there were three times more idols than there were people in the city. And it was said that Athens was so stocked with deities that it was easier to find a god than it was to find a man at the time. There was more idol worship in Athens than there was in the rest of Greece combined. That's how bad it was. And this distressed Paul. He was emotionally troubled to see people worshiping idols in the way that they were. He was horrified that in a a center of learning, a place where that was supposed to be so enlightened, that men would be so ignorant and bow down and worship what their own hands had made. People are still ignorant of the one true God. And I mean who he is. I mean his personality, his love for people. Men and women, they don't understand that even today. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we distressed about men and women's ignorance of God? Does it cause us to have an emotional response? In verse 17, it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. So this time he has a two-pronged approach. We know that most times Paul goes directly to a synagogue, and it sounds like he did do that here. But he also went into the marketplace and to whoever was there at the time. I don't know if he was street preaching, open-air preaching, doing some cold contact evangelism, whatever he was doing. He began to talk to the people that were there, teaching them about Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus' compassion drove him to preach and to teach and to heal... The only fitting response for the church in a lost world is compassion and evangelism. That is the response that God wants us to have. In verse 18, he gets into a debate with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These were 
the two major and uh, even fighting at times um, schools of, of thought when it came to philosophy in Greece at the time. The Epicureans were those who sought to, to find pleasure and to avoid pain. Do you know anybody like that? People who only want to go after pleasure and will do anything that they can to avoid pain. Uh, there's lots of that in our culture today. When I was in line at, at Walmart, one of those nights, as we were stocking it for the storm, there was a woman behind us, and um, she was talking about how frantic everyone was and wanting to buy everything out of the store. And she said, and you know what? She said, it's not like we really need all this stuff. She said, I bet any of us can go home and we can open up our pantries and we already have enough food to get us through this entire storm. And I listened to her and I just kind of smiled and I said, yeah, I think we're probably not freaking out over not getting essentials. We're probably just freaking out because we're not going home with our favorite snacks. <laughs> we don't get the cereal that we want, the potato chips that we want and everything else. But I think it's indicative of our culture. We, we are pleasure seekers, especially here in the United States and in first world countries. Uh, anything that we can do to uh, get a little bit of pleasure and anything that we can do to avoid just a little bit of pain, we're going to do it. Yeah. Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, they were more driven by virtue. Uh, they had the, the belief that, that if they reduced their desires, then they wouldn't desire anything and therefore they wouldn't have to be upset or let down when an expectation wasn't met. And so their mindset was more of, um, you know, life happens to everyone, good and bad happens. We just need to kind of, you know, buckle down and we need to just kind of soldier on and march through life. And that's the way that we'll get through this if, if we just hold to virtue and just do the right thing. Do we know anybody like that? Actually, Stoicism um, won the day over Epicureanism, and it is the more dominant thought in our culture um, today because of this. But I, I tend to be a lot like this. I tend to just think, you know, just emotions, I don't really care. You know, whatever happens, I don't really care. I'm just going to keep my eye on the prize. I'm just going to keep marching forward. and I might get hit along the way. No big deal. But in the end, I'm going to make it. There's parts of both philosophies that are good. But in neither philosophy is there um, total truth. Okay? So, anyway, take, take what you want from that. Neither of these believed in the afterlife as, as we would think of the afterlife. And so even today we have different um, philosophies. You know, um, live and let live is a current philosophy, right? Um, what's good for you may not be good for me. That's a philosophy. Uh, well, just try to be a good person. That's a philosophy. We even have political philosophies, right? Like, are you a conservative? Are you a liberal? And depending upon where you stand there, the other one has to be like a really, really bad person, right? Yin and yang, karma, like all these things are different types of outlooks or c'est la vie, different Outlooks or perspectives of how to make sense of life. And that's what Paul was dealing with here in Athens. But the Athenians were confused because Paul was preaching the unknown philosophy of Jesus and the resurrection. They'd never heard that one before. The idea was foreign to them. And the idea was basically that we do not look to ourselves or to other people for answers. 
But we look to God for our answers. That was foreign. But we have offended this God by being arrogant, thinking we know better and disobeying him. And our deeds have earned us death. But because God loves us, he's extended grace to humanity through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus was given as a sacrifice or a payment, you could say, for our arrogance and our disobedience. He died on the cross, but he defeated death when he rose from the dead on the third day. And he offers a way for us to now be forgiven, to defeat death ourselves and to accept this grace by repenting or turning from our arrogance and putting our faith in him, not in ourselves And then following Jesus in gratitude. And this is the good news. The Bible says that Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So that how is this different from the other philosophies of the day? Well, one, men didn't make it up. All the other philosophies of the day, it was guys sitting around, just like it says, they were sitting around talking about the latest ideas. And from their own thoughts, their own minds, they would come up with these different uh, concepts, these different ideas. The gospel was not made up. The gospel has been revealed to us by God. Another way that it was different is that the gospel is personal and relational. Our faith, can you believe this? Our faith is built upon an interpersonal relationship with God himself. The people of Athens and the people of the day would have never even imagined. I mean, how can you have a relationship with Zeus or Hercules or Hermes or any one of the the pantheon of gods? You can't have a relationship with them. They're way too whatever, holy or strong or powerful. Never would they want to have a relationship with a mere puny human being. But the gospel was so different because the creator of the universe wants to have a relationship with man. And he allows a relationship with man. That's incredible. Another significant difference is that the gospel is based on love. Love, not law. Love, not duty. Love, not expectation. Love. God loves us. We love him in return. And the greatest command is to do what? Love who? God and who? Your neighbor as yourself or others. Thank you. And so we're doing Christianity right, if you want to say that. We're doing Christianity right when our relationships are filled with love. And that metric, that um, standard would have been foreign to an Athenian. I think the last thing that we see that makes the gospel quite different from other philosophies is that God sacrifices for his enemies. Now, you've heard, we've all heard about the the God or the lightning bolt coming down and zapping people, right? I mean, that was from Greek mythology. It was the Greek gods that rode on thunderbolts of lightning and held thunderbolts of lightning and would hurl them at men and and zap them when men did wrong things or when men offended them. But we have a God who not only loves us, but is willing to go through pain for the ones who have offended him. Like that's so 
That's like, like, it's more than backwards. It's like inside, it's like, it's just crazy to even think that that's the kind of God that we serve. And so as the Athenians would have heard this, no wonder they had the response that they had. What is this babbler saying? May we know these new ideas that you are teaching. Because there was, Paul was saying something completely foreign to them. To them. People are still wondering today about uh, the meaning of life. Or people are still trying to put things together. People are still trying to understand. What is this life really all about? Why do these things happen to me the way that they happen? Or why are there hurricanes that turn off course in the last minute? And all these different things. People are still trying to... to uh, Make it all mesh. Make it all come together. And people don't know and understand about Jesus. Because when you do understand about Jesus, life begins to make a whole lot more sense. Actually, today, the biggest question is whether or not we live in a simulation. Have you heard that one before? You know, Elon Musk, the guy that um, runs Tesla, he didn't make it up, but he's been propagating this philosophy or theory of what if we really are, are living in a simulation? And the thinking is, with the amount of computing power that's been doubling over the years, if you extend that, let's just say, to the next 100 or 500 years, how much more computing power will there be then versus now? And with that much computing power, won't they be able to develop a simulation that is incredibly lifelike? And if they're able to do that, How do we know that we're not in that simulation that those guys have already made? That's the thinking. And people are really having a lot of debate about this. People are really confused. Like, am I living in a simulation? Am I in the matrix right now? I just say, like, pinch yourself. Like, hello? Like, we're not in a matrix. This is reality. But... People are so confused. The lines are blurred between what is real and and what is not real. In particular, when you don't have God in your life, it's easy to go down that rabbit hole. I think some people want to live in a simulation. (laughs) Some people want to escape the the, the horrors and the pains of life. and, And so we drown ourselves, right, in movies. And it's where we get the term couch potato from or vegging out. Or the newest one is, what is it? I don't want to adult today, basically. I I want to escape reality. I want to live. Put me in the simulation, right? Anyway, we don't need to live in a simulation and escape reality, okay? We have Jesus. Life is good. Just the way God has made it. But the fact that the Athenians didn't know about Jesus distressed Paul and it moved him to act. That's why he began to go out and preach. And I pray that we too are burdened in the same way. That we can see that many people have a warped philosophy about life and that we have an answer through Jesus to help people to understand what life is really all about. Amen? Amen. Point number two, the unknown or an unknown God. Uh, Beginning in verse 22, Paul gets to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was like the Supreme Court of Greece, sort of. And so Paul gets there. He wasn't like arrested. I mean, normally when he does these things, he gets arrested beforehand. 
I think they were genuinely wanting to know, like, what is he teaching? And they also kind of had control over who was teaching what. And so if someone had like this new teaching that was coming on, they had to kind of approve it in a sense. And so they wanted to listen to what he was saying. So Paul gets there. He begins to speak to all those that are listening. And um, he begins in verse 24 or verse 23. He said, uh, verse 22, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And so Paul is somewhat respectful of them. He says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So that all these 30,000 different altars they would have, people would know this is what, Aphrodite and this is Zeus and this is Hermes and this is so and so. But just in case they missed one, they didn't want to offend a God that perhaps they might have missed. They had an altar that was marked. Well, this one is to the unknown God. Like we don't even know who he is or she is or it is. But let's just keep this one here just to be sure that we covered all of our bases. And so Paul saw that. And he says, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And Paul is telling them, you don't understand how life works. You are trying, you're sitting around all day trying to figure all this stuff out. Let me just break it down for you. Really, this has everything to do with God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. God has made the entire world and he's made everything that's in it. There are not certain gods that do certain things or make certain things, which is what they believe. Like there was the God of the sky, there was God of the animals, God of the rain, God of this, God of that. Paul is saying, no, there's just one God and he's made everything. Everything that there is to see, everything that there is to know, everything that there is to experience. This one God has made it and he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He says that he does not live in temples built by human hands. So as far as where God dwells, it's not in a temple or in a church building that you've built. Why would God or how could God who's made all things confine himself to some little whatever special looking temple that you've made? It doesn't make any sense. And the Lord in verse 25, he's not served by human hands as if he needed Anything. He doesn't need a human being to build a house for him. He doesn't need a human being to house him, put shelter over his head. He doesn't need a human being to serve him. How can the God of the universe who owns everything need anything? Paul is saying. And he says, rather, instead of receiving from men, he gives to men. He's generous. He gives life. He gives breath. He gives everything else. God is not a getter. God is a giver. We're not doing God any favors by being on earth. He's doing us the favor by allowing us to be on earth. We don't support him. He supports us. Does that make sense? And in verse 26, he made all men from one man and gave them a mission to fill the earth. The Greeks um, thought that they were a superior race. If you didn't speak Greece, Greek, they called you a barbarian. That's where the word comes from. 
And so Paul is simply explaining to them that we've all come from the same stock here. I know that you think that you're better because you're Greek, but actually we're brothers, right? The Jews, the Greeks, and everybody else. I think that's a great point for us today. There are still people who think that because of their skin color or because of what flag flies over uh, their nation, that they somehow are better. But God has made it clear that he's made all men from one, na- one man. God guides history in verse 26. He says that he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God determines the rise and the fall of nations. America is powerful now, but we're an incredibly young nation, less than 300 years old. And who knows what America will look like 300 years from now if Jesus doesn't come back. Who knows where we're going to rank on the list of nations or whether or not America will even exist 300 years from now. God determines these things. God draws political and national boundaries. And in verse 27, God has a purpose. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. The, the, the Greek word here for reach out is more like grope. Imagine if, if, if you were, um, actually it is the word where um, Paul was blinded in Acts chapter 9. Paul was, was groping around. That's what this word means. And God is saying that he's made himself available so that we can grope in our blindness, in our ignorance, so that we can reach out to him and so that we can find him. Every move in our lives, every job change, where we've been born, the families that we've been born into, every hardship, every struggle. If you're a guest here this morning, why do you think you're here? It's all for the purpose of reaching out to God and finding him. Why? Because he wants a relationship. I mean, that's just like so. I'm just like, every time I think about that, like he actually wants a relationship with us. And so he organizes the events of our lives to put us in position so that we will reach out to him. The pain that we go through, we're like, oh, I'm in agony, right? Like, Lord, help me. God's thinking, that's what I want you to do. Right? The hurricane that's down. I'm not saying that God is malicious and he wants to kill people. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that he allows these situations, right? So that we can be on our knees and pray and say, Father, please let this hurricane pass us over, right? So that we can seek him out. So that we can ask, how does all of this work? And perhaps find him. Because he wants a relationship with us. It's amazing. In verse 28, Paul quotes a couple of Greek philosophers. The first is Epimenides. And he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. The second is Aratus, who says... We are his offspring. So if you notice through Paul's speech here, the main thing that Paul is explaining to them is that God is not created by us. Meaning idolatry is wrong, but that we are created by him. He is not ours. We are his, is what Paul is saying. And so he's changing their thinking. 
And their own philosophers even confess from time to time the idea that humans are in God's world versus God being in a human world. Some believe that God is an idea that humans came up with to comfort them in suffering or to make sense of life. But again, Epimenides and Aratus and Paul, they had it right. God is not a creation of our imaginations. We are the creation of his imagination. He thought us up long before time began. And that is how we got here. We have not created him, but he as a divine creator has brought us into existence. And I know I'm saying the same thing over and over. I'm trying to say it in different ways. I'm trying to drill home the point that we are not the center of the universe, that life does not revolve around us, that everything that exists is not because I simply thought it to be. We play on God's field. We're in God's fish tank. He's the one watching us swim around and do the things. We're not watching him. Does that make sense? (laughs) Sorry. Here's another one. It's his world. And we live in it. (laughs) That's reality. That is reality. And the reality that God gives us You know, I don't know. Think about going out surfing or rock climbing or a good run or a good game of basketball in the park or riding your bike. I don't know. A tear running down your cheek or someone's hand touching yours. Those experiences are far better than any kind of creation that a man could make. Far better than RCA or Sony or 20th Century Fox can dream up or EA Sports or whatever else. God's experiences are so much better. And we get to experience these things ourselves. We get to live the life that God has created for us. And yes, at times it is painful. Yes, at times we do suffer. But it's good to suffer. It's good to feel a little bit of pain, a little bit of blood running through your veins. You know what I mean? It keeps things exciting to feel a little bit of pain in your life. I don't wish a lot of pain on any of us, but a little bit, I believe, is good. This is the unknown God. This is the God that they did not understand. This is the God that they were ignorant of. This is the God that many people, even here in Hampton Roads, still are ignorant of and that we need to explain to people. In verse 29, since we are his and he is not ours, we should repent. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people Everywhere to repent. That now, now he's referring to since Jesus has been risen from the dead. He commands all people to repent. God cannot be carved out of stone or cast with metal or housed in a building. That is not reality. And we have to come to grips with what reality truly is. And who God truly is. That he is the God of heaven and earth. 
and there will be a judgment. And it says that. Verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the beginning of the judgment. Jesus was the first to be judged in a sense. He was, uh, he was killed in, the, in, the, in his body on a tree and he was risen from the dead on the third day. The first to suffer judgment so that we who put our faith in him do not have to suffer judgment. But because that has happened, that's a foreshadowing of later events. Which is the rubber will hit the road and no matter how much you want to play in the simulation, no matter how many YouTube videos you want to watch and, and, and whatever else you want to do to escape reality, being a couch potato and vegging out and everything else, guess what? There's going to be a bucket of cold water that gets splashed on you one day. Because Jesus is coming back. And the Bible says that those who are dead, they will rise to be judged. And we will all have to face that reality one day. Let us not be confused about who God is. Let us not be caught navel-gazing and philosophizing over whether or not we live in a simulation when that day comes. God is not unknown. He's organized our lives for the express purpose of us clearly knowing who he is and having a loving relationship with him. Last point, and I'm closing out here. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on that subject, on this subject. You know, man's response to... I'm supposed to say, yeah, so an unknown response, that's the title, that's the point. Man's response to the gospel is always unknown. None of us has the, the foresight or the ability to see into someone's heart to know that once the gospel message is preached, whether or not that person is actually going to respond. And it's like the parable of the sower, right? It says that a farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he's scattering his seed, some fall in rocky places, some gets eaten up by the birds, some actually spring up, but then they wilt and die, right? And, but some produce 30, 60, or 100-fold. But unfortunately, you never know which seed is going to do what thing. All you can do is be the farmer and just cast your seed, cast your seed, cast your seed, right? And so we're the same way. The Athenians' response to the resurrection was mixed, some people sneered. Others wanted to hear more. Others followed Paul and believed. And according to Eusebius, this uh, guy here, Dionysius, he went on to lead the church in Athens later on. And so if you're here seeking God this afternoon, if you're ignorant of God, if you're trying to understand life and how does this work? And maybe you were invited here this morning or maybe you found us on the, the internet or maybe you just saw some random card on the ground and you said, let me just go to this Hampton Roads church place because maybe, maybe you're thinking too, I need some answers. I need to figure out who God is and what this life is about. If that's you and you're asking the same questions, 
that men have been asking for thousands of years. What will your response be to the unknown God and his son, Jesus Christ? He's been made known to you this afternoon. He's been explained to you. Now, I I admit I probably didn't do the best job of it, okay? But you know enough. You know enough to now make a decision and respond. Before you leave today, someone will probably invite you to get together or look at some scriptures. I encourage you to take them up on the offer. Say yes. Learn more about the unknown God that loves you, that's revealed himself to you, and wants to have a relationship with you. God has revealed himself in a personal way through Jesus and not through idols. And Paul made that known amongst the intellectuals of Athens. The gospel was an unknown philosophy then, and even though many claim to know Jesus, it's a relatively unknown philosophy today. The unknown God has made himself known so that we might seek him, reach out for him, and find him. Church, may our response be known to God and to the rest of the world that we have decided to follow Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.